Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today, our guest is Russell Jaffe. Dr. Russell Jaffe is a biochemist, internist, clinical and chemical pathologist, immunologist, and founder of ELISA ACT Biotechnologies, a clinical laboratory specializing in immunology testing. He received his education from Boston University and completed residency training in clinical chemistry at the National Institutes of Health. He authored the controversial book, Clean Your Room. Dr. Jaffe started his career searching for deeper understanding, wisdom, evidence, and insight into the mechanisms of health. Through intense curiosity and learned skepticism, Dr. Jaffe sought to debunk the best-known advocates of a variety of health promotion and healing systems. What started as a journey to disprove holistic forms of care became a rich educational experience that transformed him into a student and then a researcher in such areas as traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, active meditation, homeopathy, and manipulative arts. Motivated by his personal transition, Dr. Jaffe went to reinvent himself professionally by starting the Health Studies Collegium, a think tank that focuses on sustainable solutions to global health needs. For the last 30 years, Dr. Jaffe has advocated a system that treats people, not diagnoses, cause, not consequence, and promotes long-term sustainable solutions as an alternative to a system dominated by prescriptive, symptom-suppressive solutions. Dr. Jaffe's cumulative experiences enabled him to take his efforts one step further and build Perk Integrative Health, a company that offers the world's scientifically proven integrative health solutions that speed the transition from sick care to healthful caring. Dr. Jaffe's practical contributions to clinical medicine and to healthcare policy focus on functional predictive tests and procedures designed to improve the precision of both diagnoses and of treatment outcomes. He has authored nearly 100 articles on the subject and given a 1,000 lectures to the world's leading institutions. He has served on the American Board of Clinical Metal Toxicology and coordinated its certification training program. He has been awarded as America's top physician in 2005, Who's Who in America, Science and Medicine, Business and Engineering, Dr. Jaffe is the recipient of the Merck Sharp and Dom Excellence in Research Award, the J.D. Lane Award, and the USPHS Meritorious Service Award. He teaches and lectures widely on nutritional immunology and treatment guidelines for chronic autoimmune and immune dysfunction syndromes and has helped elucidate the causes and consequences of immune defense and repairs functions in health and disease. He is also the founder and chairman of Magic Biotherapeutics. Last but not least, Dr. Jaffe currently lives in Virginia on his thriving permaculture acreage. Welcome, Russell. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. You know, Alicia tells me that you wrote a book that was banned from libraries, so I feel like that must have been a really good book. (laughs) What was in that book? Well, it's an interesting little anecdote. So this goes back to the early 80s, and the topic was indoor environmental quality, what has come to be called thick building syndrome. And I took the project because I wanted to propose solutions. I didn't just want to terrify people with the problem. So we go ahead, Sheila Gerzoff, I had one assistant. This was under the governor, but for the Department of Consumer Affairs, Richard Spohn was in charge. And the project came to light under the name Clean Your Room. And what it says is there's 18 problems in the built environment in the new modern energy conserving, mold enhancing ways. And here's the solutions. 
And it had nothing to do with me, but it had a lot to do with the impact of the report because the report was used by the OTA, the Office of Technology Assessment of the United States Congress. It was used by the Environmental Protection Agency. It was used by the World Health Organization and, you know, other people that have initials. And then Governor Brown's time was complete and the new governor was named Duke Major. And Governor Duke Majin really, really, really disliked not only Governor Brown, but his policies, because it, it might have been personal, but I think it really was political. And so they made a list of state paid reports, the state of California paid for the report I'm talking about, and they purged them from every, not just state library. They sent a letter to the Library of Congress that refused to throw away the copy. It does exist. I have a copy. It's an antiquity at this point because it was done in the early 80s, but there's nothing I would change in it. And yes, mold was then a problem and it's more a problem today. And we could talk about the classic examples, including the EPA headquarters in Washington, D.C., which turned out to be, in essence, the first site that documented definitively sick building syndrome caused by building techniques to the point where they ended up having to tear the building down. They could not mitigate it. So Clean Your Room, a classic report by Russell Jaffe under the young Governor Brown. And he and I have stayed in touch. I did his health policy when he ran for national office. And it was an interesting education because what we said was very simple, which is if you make people sick, it's bad and too costly, and therefore don't make them sick, and therefore change some of your practices. And here's the little anecdote to finish this side of the story. At that time, Gregory Bateson was one of the intellectual heroes for Governor Brown. They had a building which was called Site 1A, now the Gregory Bateson, the Gregory Bateson State of California office building. Anyway, they finished the building and Sim Vanderen, a very accomplished architect and the state architect, Hal, an architect from Berkeley, who's the reason why I did the project, the three of us, we're walking through the building And Hal and I know that there's so much volatile organic chemicals being off-gassed by the glues and by the synthetic materials that were used at that time because they were considered to be better. And so we convinced him to go to the governor and say, please have the ribbon cutting event and the photo op, but do not let the people in the building and cook it for six months. Open all the windows, turn the heat on, off-gas that building because it's going to make people sick. And the governor said, we have to move in because we have to move in because I'm the governor and I say move in. And who moved it? The Office of Appropriate Technology and their Environmental Protection Agency and other similar groups. And so many people developed asthma and migraines, autoimmunity, eczema, psoriasis, and other chronic illnesses that they had to shut the building down and cook it. And that actually got into the Sacramento Bee because it was really embarrassing to have to not follow common sense, but follow political expediency. So I'm happy to share that little personal anecdote. We would love a copy of of your of the report to I'm pretty sure we have it as a PDF somewhere. It's pretty long. But it is a classic and some people consider it collectible. I think you hit on an interesting point the way that politics are intermingled with science and seems to be an overarching theme that's preventing some progress being made in the environmental health side of things. As someone who came as a skeptic and now would consider himself an environmental physician scientist, spot on. 
if what you believe or what you know comes from a press agent through the marketing department, I'm telling you, you won't get the true story. If you want the facts, it's complicated. It's not like, oh, E equals MC squared, now we can all go home. I wish it was. But mold is A, a huge cause of chronic ill health in people today. Mold is also mitigatable. You can manage it. You can measure it. You can make sure that the harmful parts do not afflict you, except some of the time you just have to move. Some people become so hypersensitive that they just can't stay you know, within one molecule of the problem until tolerance is restored. That's not common, but it's increasingly common. It's called environmental illness. However, what I said, molds produce certain products. Molds can grow in certain environments. Molds are just being molds. It's not personal when people become harmed by mold. But people should not be exposed to mold. And I live out in the woods. And by the way, if you live in the woods, you'll be exposed to certain molds. But I don't get exposed to harmful molds because I live in a permaculture biodynamic food forest. I do, in a mature woods. And let me say how, how doable it is. Mine is now a dozen years old. It was started by my dear son, Sky. But now, because of permaculture, which means you let the plants live among each other's and their little roots interdigitate, and then you add some healthy soil and some compost and little things that plants like, and now they become pest resistant. They're more productive. We actually have 250 edible plants. Maybe it's a little more than a quarter of an acre front yard. And I wanted to show that even in our nice zip code here in Northern Virginia, you could have edible landscaping and not just a lawn. And then the folks from GSA, the Government Services Administration, call up and say, you know, you have the only permaculture biodynamic food forest east of the Mississippi that's mature. I say, oh, why are you calling? Well, could we come visit? I said, sure. So when someone who's in charge of a government building wants edible landscaping or permaculture incorporated, they're welcome to come, as you are, to our garden. And whatever is, right now it's pickles, tomatoes, and, and uh, berries. But whatever we have, we share. That's awesome. Thank you, Dr. Jaffe. Now, I want to ask you something very serious. Mold illness is a condition that's hard to treat. There's no big pharma incentive to drive physician adoptions to a new disease category. There's actually disincentives for insurance and building industry that provide political manipulation. So how does one overcome these barriers to establish a research base and drive awareness to the legitimacy to help adoption by the American Medical Association and get listed on on the upcoming WHO IDC-11? ICD-11. Good question. I've been an AMA member for 50 years, and they tell me I have. I'm going to try and give you a short answer to an elegantly important and rather pressing question follow the money. And what that means is, if it's liability and the cause of the liability is indemnified by us, by the United States government, then what incentive do they have to avoid liability? Number two, many good words cover a multitude of sins. For example, environmental protection agency. Well-intended, as someone who's been involved with these issues for decades, 
I meet a lot of well-intended people who recognize that what they do is like swimming through molasses in Boston in January. You just have to be very, very patient and hold your breath. It's part of why I left that environment, but I was in that environment. I had the great good fortune of getting, doing medicine and biochemistry at Boston University under some spectacular mentors, joining the public health service at the clinical center of NIH, collaborating on the occult blood testing for cancer testing, developing the concentration technique that allows you to see parasites in stool. We actually did a study in regard to mold way back when showing that bad mold was bad and people should be able to defend themselves at the surface, at their mucosa, at their skin, at their lips, at their gut. And if they can't defend themselves there, they should be able to defend themselves with first line immune response right below the surface. But what you said is true. There is no pharmaceutical candidate. There is no approved pharmaceutical that increases secretory IgA, which is protective all over your body. But I know how to raise your secretory IgA. Eat an alkaline diet, eat foods you can digest, assimilate and eliminate without immune burden. Laugh, touch, and soak. Soak in baking soda and Epsom salts to remove certain surface toxins and dead skin. Come out pink like a baby, not red like a lobster. And then maybe rub your skin you'd be surprised how much more youthful your skin would look, not yours, because your, your skin looks very youthful. But for those of us of a certain age, if you just dry rub your skin, it stimulates the circulation, improves the quality of your restorative sleep, lowers your blood pressure, improves your digestion. And I could go on, but isn't that enough benefit from just dry rubbing your skin? So I do believe that there are self-care things that we need to do urgently because we won't have them marketed to us. There isn't enough profit in them. We won't hear them even from our doctors. And I'll tell you a quick little anecdote. So Mia, my mother-in-law, goes to her cardiologist, and she notices behind the cardiologist is a credenza, and on the credenza there is PERC mitogard, which is something I created, mycelized CoQ10 in high uptake form. And she says, what's that? And the doctor turns around and says, that's mine. And Mia says, well, do you know Dr. Jaffe? And the woman says, do you know Dr. Jaffe? And he says, of course I do. He comes with the children. Unfortunately, today, the experts who are expert in certain areas have real difficulty admitting ignorance. I did not learn in the 8,000 plus hours I had in medical school and residency, I learned nothing about functional nutrition, about mold mitigation, about environmental quality, as in nothing. But I had an opinion. Because if it was important, somebody would have told me it was important. And since they told me it wasn't important, my opinion was it wasn't important. My great good fortune was I went to debunk. And I found my ignorance. And most of us who ended up in environmental medicine got there one of two ways. Either we got sick or a loved one got sick, and that's how we got there. Or people like me, we didn't want to get sick, but we needed to understand what was it that they knew that we needed to know that we didn't know because functional, personal, integrative, holistic approaches, not part of the curriculum, not even today, not even today. So you can only, in my opinion, you can only ask a person for advice where they are competent. Doctors are competent to make a diagnosis and come forward with a prescriptive solution. 
If you ask a doctor, what is the cause of the problem? What is the environmental relationships? What can I do to mitigate the causes? One of two or three responses. One is, boy, that's a good question. I don't know either. That's an honest response. The other answer is just do what I say because I'm the doctor. That's not satisfying to me anymore. And the other answer is we don't know yet. We need more studies. Uh, yes, I know the environment's important and mold can kill you, but I'm not sure which mold on which, in which situation. Or more importantly, I don't have a script. I don't have a prescriptive solution. Today, unfortunately, most doctors have five, 10, or 15 minutes with the person and they have to write their notes in that time and write the prescriptions, which pop out of a computer. I'm sorry, I wanna to go to a doctor who cares enough about me that when I walk in, they say, how are you? And I remember so-and-so last time. Very often today, people do not expect to see the same doctor again. And the doctor doesn't expect to see them again. And I think that was a step backward. I don't think that was a step forward. So there's lots of systemic issues, all of which revolve around what do we mean about personalized medicine? What do we mean about functional, integrative, holistic, patient-centered care? I'm in favor of all of that, but it's hard to find that in the conventional community. I agree with you 100%. And I think that's actually, hopefully, in the future becomes the norm, functional, integrative healthcare. Because as we're seeing, the standard allopathic care is just not meeting the needs, especially for people who have chronic diseases. But the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of people have health care insurance through their employers, and they're only able to afford allopathic care, whereas these functional doctors are, I mean, the cost barrier is so high for a lot of people. So it's almost as if you, if you don't have the money, you're not going to actually be able to get the proper care that you need. Let me agree with you, because as you probably know, if you want to know the health status of a community, look at the socioeconomics of the zip code. So right about that. Number two, it's called health insurance. It's not about health, and it's not about insurance, and I was taught that by Roy Anderson. Roy Anderson had been president of the American Actuarial Society. He was picked by Justin Branch to run Allstate Insurance, except he had a mystery environmental illness and was in a wheelchair. And a friend of mine asked if I'd make a house call. A year later, he was in remission and decided to bring long-range thinking and planning to the insurance industry. But one of the many things I learned from Roy Anderson is it's called health insurance, but it has nothing to do with health and nothing to do with insurance. It had everything to do with disease care reimbursement. So call it what it is. It's disease care reimbursement. And disease care is getting more and more expensive. It'll be three and a half trillion dollars this year in the United States, of which one third, that's more than a trillion, is to bury people early at high suffering and cost. We spend a trillion dollars a year to bury a million people early at high suffering and cost and take them away from their loved ones? Yep, that's the data. Now, it was our Health Studies Collegium group that pulled it all together, but this comes out of the Dartmouth Atlas. It comes out of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement at Harvard. You're actually are people that track statistics, like the National Center for Healthcare Statistics. Used to be run by Kerr White, an amazing man, who told me that I didn't know anything about anything and that he would eventually let me learn. And he did. No, no, no. He was tough, but he was right. I knew statistics like a mathematician can quote a formula from a book. I didn't know the meaning of statistics. And he said, if you don't know the meaning, then you don't understand. I said, but I'm an expert. He says, that's part of your problem. You think you're an expert. 
<laughs> Those people who are really experts end up knowing how little they know, not how much. Thank you for that. I think we have to take back control of our health. If you have a disease and it needs a diagnosis, go to a doctor who can make the diagnosis and hopefully the treatment will help you. But I'm telling you, most of the time, people don't need a diagnosis. Their problem is not a prescriptive deficiency. Their problem is a nutritional or environmental or attitudinal or similar. We look at causes, not consequences. Uh, symptoms get reimbursed. Procedures get reimbursed. You may or may not know this, but in England, surgeons are considered technicians and they're called mister. American surgeons looked at that and they started Blue Cross Blue Shield so that reimbursement would go to procedures and to surgeons preferentially. And knowledge, wisdom, experience, where is that reimbursed? So the first point I'm trying to make is we need to take charge of our health promotion and that has to do with what you eat, what you drink, what you think, and what you do. Notice there was no diagnosis. Notice there was no requirement of a professional. There was no prescription required to eat a healthy, organic, or biodynamic whole foods diet that is rich in grasses, free of grains, that is rich in foods you can digest, assimilate, and eliminate without immune burden, and avoids high on the food chain contaminated foods like fish and meat for most people. There are always exceptions. I do get kosher halal totally grass-fed lamb chops from Cole Foods, a wonderful little boutique. If you can afford to pay that much for a lamb chop, as we say, mazel tov, congratulations, good for you. If you want quality food that's high on the food chain, and by that I mean fish and meat, and you don't want a lot of contaminants in what you're eating, I can tell you that it's expensive because the quality food is in short supply. And what I'm saying is eat a lot of grasses and forget all the grains. The grains are what you're used to. The grasses are buckwheat and wild rice, millet and quinoa, simple staples around the world, nutritionally dense. You can get them easily in organic bulk. You can make them at home, throw in some garlic, ginger, onions, brassica sprout, and eggs. Now you detoxify, throw in some herbs. I walk out and I harvest basil and parsley and some other herbs and give it a coarse chop and I throw it in. So I think we have been living in a myth that says the doctor knows and has the solution to your health challenge. I'm telling you that's an illusion. And if the doctor was honest, they would say, I can't deliver that. Now, those who get certified by the PIH Academy, and we're in year four of certifying professionals from health coaches to physicians, the PIH Academy is an online certification program that not only gives you information and inspiration, it gives you solutions, and it gives you continuing education credit. I think we are in a time of great transition. Within a time of transition, there are a few people who just want something new, and they just want something new, and they just want something new, and they're called butterflies. Then you have early adopters. That's where we live. We live with the people who say, give me the evidence, let me test and verify for myself, Show me that it is possible to live well and healthy, even in these stressful, challenging, intoxicated times. That's where we live. Then there's a large majority of people called late adopters. They come late. And then there's a category of people more or less called, we're not going to do that. It saddens me to say that whatever training I had in no way prepared me for the challenges of today. And I'm not alone. 
I'm not the only one who made the discovery. What I did was go to debunk and find people who not only knew how ignorant I was, they were tolerant while they mentored me so that I could correct my ignorance. But you have to do that if you have the time and the privilege and the opportunity. So I go to debunk acupuncture and I spend seven years with Queen Nuan Wu and we translate the, the non-ching. I go to debunk acupuncture and yoga and I meet Ramamurti Mishra and I become a student and then he becomes my patient. I go to a birthday party for a Cambodian monk. I meet Bhante. He moves in and teaches me about life and color healing and non-invasive evoking healing responses. And we could spend a whole lot of time talking about the people that I went to debunk where I ended up first being their accolade. First, I sat at their feet and drank in what they had to offer. But then I became their doctor most of the time. I am a doctor. And everybody needs a doctor. And they need a doctor who knows it and who cares about it. So it is possible. But you have to look carefully, personally, to find rapport, to find relationship, because that's where healing occurs, in my opinion. Thank you. That, that was a very thoughtful answer. I will append one more point. Sure. When people come to you grateful for saving their life, don't just say you're welcome. Their cousin might be worth a bazillion dollars. Most of the innovative research in the last 15 years was privately funded. And then when it was ready, it could get more public funding. But if you think the public funds are there to lead, you're living on a different planet. 1947 to the late 70s was one time. That was the meritocracy. I had the best of the last of that, and I'm very grateful for it. But starting around 1980, for a variety of political and financial reasons, everything changed. And today, NIH follows with confirmation of vanilla, does not lead. And if you ask them to lead, they will politely say, lead what? <laughs> That's how long they haven't been leading. I feel like I'm listening to like a medical sermon and I'm, in my mind, I'm just saying, preach, Dr. Jaffe, preach. I think uh, as you can tell, because I wear this little hat, <laughs> I am a man of science, but I am a man of spirit. I agree with Einstein. I think his famous quote was, science without spirit is blind. Spirit without science is lame. Now that's just a quip but it's a very thoughtful comment from a guy who actually thought before he spoke, which today is a refreshing change from the people who speak first with great confidence and people like me listen knowing they don't know what they're talking about. They, they're just reading a script. Yeah, we seem to run into a lot of interesting experts that, you know, they're so attached to this idea that if it's not published in the literature, the ideas don't exist. And every time you hear that, every time you hear that, ask them if they've ever heard of Sir William Osler, because everybody's heard of Sir William Osler. Then have they heard of his essays called Equanimitas, equanimity in Latin, I think it's Latin, is equanimitas. This man spoke, wrote a whole textbook of medicine, and he pointed out repeatedly, you never treat a pathology. You always evoke healing within a person. Now, if they're still listening to you, you quote Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was an interesting guy, kind of known in his time. He was a doctor and he was a lawyer. And he said famously, 
if you took all the pharmaceuticals and put them in a great sea trunk and threw it in the ocean, it would be all the better for the patients and all the worser for the fishes. The dose makes the poison. Too often, the effective dose and the toxic dose are too close to meet my professional criteria. And I am in a small category called metrologists. I don't know how many metrologists you've ever met, but somebody has to know how to measure measurement, and that's what metrologists do. How do you know a pound is a pound and, and, and an ounce is an ounce? Somebody has to tell you, and they have to tell you that somewhere there's a reference ounce or pound or whatever. I fortunately was able to collaborate with folks at the National Institute of Science and Technology, and they said, you know, you care about what all these numbers mean. I said, yes, I care about what these numbers mean. And they said, good idea, because all we do is produce numbers. And they produce brilliant numbers. Brilliant, but they didn't know what they meant. And then the people who wanted to know what they meant couldn't understand the numbers. It, it's a little complicated when you get into the depth of what I would call demystifying quality science. It's expensive to do a good study that is, quote, impeccable. One of my mentors, George Zur Williams, in 1937, published the definitive article showing that smoking causes lung cancer, 1937. He opened the labs at the NIH. He was a huge deal. Do you know it was not until the 1960s that the Tobacco Institute finally gave up and agreed that tobacco did cause lung cancer? 30 years later, out of a law firm, Covington, Covington Berlin. And not only did they handle the Tobacco Institute, then they started Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Trade Association. And today they represent sugar and they represent processed food. And I'm not the first and I won't be the last to say that we are eating our way to ill health. And there's a wonderful recent book out by, called Metabolical about how diabolical it is for processed food companies to fool people with the crave factor that causes you to want more of the bad and less of the good. More of the salt, fat, and sugar, less of the essential nutrients, the essential fats, the essential components that restore us and keep us well. Bob Lustig, Robert Lustig, Professor Emeritus at UCSF, a world-class scientist, is the author of that book. Many others are saying the same thing that we've been saying for decades, which is if you want to survive today, you have to take your own health into your hands. If you want to help research get done, show up to people who know how to do methodology and volunteer or do whatever you can, because a small pilot study, well thought and well executed, can lead to a change in national policy. I did a study once on 12 people compared to 12 people, and it was enough to change diabetes management in the country. Doesn't always happen. But when it does, you, your mother remembers it and tells all of her friends. That's absolutely amazing. And I, I just want to tack on to what you said is also what we breathe, breathing our way to ill health as well with the conventional homes that people live in. Just to piggyback on your research part, um, you know, Eric was actually a prototype for the original chronic fatigue syndrome that broke out in Lake Tahoe. And I'll let him tell his story because sure. we're, we're actually working with him to try to get some of our own research going because he has been knocking on researchers' doors. Sure. No, happy yeah. to. Does the name Steve Schwartz ring a bell? Not to me. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, do you know the, the term CFITS, chronic fatigue immune dysfunction syndrome? Very well, yes. He coined the term. Oh, um, Stephen Strauss of the NIH. Sorry, sorry, you're right, Steve Strauss. Colleague of mine, well-meaning guy, wanted to find a, a, an infectious viral cause, didn't. His consolation prize was to move to the Office of Dietary Supplements. But on the one hand, really smart. I mean, creatively brilliant. On the other hand, intellectually hobbled. He needed a reductionist solution to a problem that does not yield. It's not a reductionist problem, so it doesn't yield to a reductionist solution. And I knew him well enough that he really got bummed. He got depressed because he couldn't find a virus. He found all sorts of evidence that viruses had been there. Host hospitality is something we think is very important. But consequence and cause often get confused, and he did. Absolutely. Yes, uh, I remember it well. Dr. Strauss came to Incline Village and got into quite the argument with Dr. Paul Cheney. Were you there? Yes. I'm a fan of Paul Cheney. I don't necessarily always agree, but I always listen, and he certainly deserves to be listened to. And yes, that was a famous debate. And I've already told you I'm a fan of Paul Cheney. Yeah. Um, no disrespect yeah. to Strauss. No disrespect to Strauss. It would be like, you know, Rousseau and the reductionist Enlightenment people debating with a rabbi, a Talmudic scholar. We know uh, Dr. Strauss is portrayed as the most evil person to ever blight chronic fatigue syndrome. I understand that, but I will tell you from personal knowledge, that's not true. Might have been <laughs> wrong, might have been profoundly wrong, but the notion that somehow he was part of a dark force or something, not true. I'm not saying that's not within the realm of possibility. I'm telling you Steve himself. And he took it personally. I can tell you, I've been popular and I've been unpopular. And one of the things my mother taught me was don't jump off a bridge just because they gave you a bad review in the newspaper. So, Dr. Strauss, um, he had initially uh, blamed a mutant form of Epstein-Barr virus. I know that and how wrong he was. He confused consequence with cause and host hospitality, etc. And yes, he spent a lot of your taxpayer money proving that he was wrong. And um, his debate with Dr. Paul Cheney was that he was trying to apply this Epstein-Barr virus theory to the Lake Tahoe mystery illness outbreak. And Dr. Cheney came up with evidence that showed that this was clearly wrong. So at the same time, Dr. Paul Cheney and his partner, uh, Dr. Daniel Peterson, sent blood down to the Gallo lab, and they discovered a brand new virus, HHV6-alpha. And Dr. Strauss immediately switched his focus to HHV6, did a study, and was convinced that possibly this was the new cause for the, uh, the mystery illness, for the fatigue illness that was sweeping the nation. And when the uh, blinded trials, the study was fine, they cracked the code, it completely fell flat. And it turned right. out HHV6 was not the cause. Right. Bob Gallon. At the time, Gallon was one of these very smart but very Machiavellian people. And he got Strauss at a time when Strauss was vulnerable, and they went down this so-called feline leukemia, HHV6, etc., which was another dry hole. It was another 
dry hole. Do you know the story about Gallo and Montagnier? Yes, I do. So you know that the reason that France got all the royalties was because Gallo forged a negative that he stole from Montagnier. You know Very much aware of that, yes. Okay. My brother, my brother Mitch, God bless him, my brother Mitch has 650 megabytes on a computer somewhere of all the malfeasance that Gallo was involved in, all covered by his protege who became the head of the Cancer Institute. And if you want to look at someone who might be under a shadow influence, it would be him. I think Strauss was an honest scientist. I think he came with a bias. I think he proved that he was wrong. And, and that it, it bummed him out. The people who knew that viruses caused autoimmune disease were all either propagandists or under the influence of a propagandist. There, there is no scientific basis for their reductionist, mechanistic misunderstanding. You just have to live within the reductionist silo. Well, after the uh, HHV6 study showed that uh, it was not the cause, Strauss turned his attention to environmental factors. He did. And he, uh, he wanted to look into the sick building syndrome. Oh, he did. No, no, yeah. that's true. That's not a cover. That's not an urban legend. That's true. But you know what happened. Yes, the virus theorists were so powerful at that time that they completely overwhelmed the field and they would not allow study into the sick building syndrome component. What a shock. I am shocked. Strauss was running up against the viral theorists in the Holmes Committee, and he wanted to defeat them. Initially, he came into the uh, Holmes Committee about they were going to debate what to do about this, this mystery illness. He came with his own name, neuroasthenia, and he was going to... No, no, he resurrected it. This was a word that goes back to Sir William Osler. He added an O into the middle. Uh, no, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. No, no, you, you, you really do know the issue. He, you, you keep going, because you're right. Yeah, he, he modified the name just slightly, and uh, he was going to add one more term, sporadic neuroesteem. Uh -huh. Or idiopathic, or beats me. Yeah, and uh, this was supposed to be a loose term to study environmental causes. And the um, viral theorists completely overwhelmed him, would not allow it. And so they got into this big battle. And when it turned out the viral theorists in the Holmes Committee were going to dominate the field, he decided to destroy the syndrome. He decided, right. since he couldn't stop them, the best thing for him to do was cast the new syndrome into so much doubt and confusion that it would collapse under its own burden of confusion and then he could take over and proceed on with his own studies. So I got a little uh, perturbed at this point because actually there were viruses or what appeared to be a virus involved as a trigger. And I thought that if Dr. Strauss was to successfully cast the new syndrome into so much confusion that this would result in wild battles and people just completely out of control for many years to come. So I thought, no, what we have to do is look back at the original incident and take all the factors into account, the sick building syndrome and the viruses that were going through at the time. But the viral theorists were not willing to do that. And Stephen Strauss's name was cast into complete disrepute at this time. 
And I remember you brought up something that uh, just absolutely blows me away. I'd forgotten about that building that uh, Jerry Brown was working mm. on. Remember we called him uh, Moonbeam. Governor Moonbeam, Site 1A, now the Gregory Bateson Building, but also the EPA headquarters. And that was Moonbeam's moonshot. It was. It was. Absolutely. No, absolutely. This was as political as it got in regard to claiming a space where he would get political contributions from agriculture, from construction, from biopharma, from insurance, and nobody would know where he really stood. It was an architectural masterpiece, an amazing oh, yes. building. No, no, Sim Vanderen, the guy we were walking with, it was his masterpiece and genuinely is from a visual, architectural, appropriate use of materials. But at the time, they really didn't think about indoor air. They didn't think about off-gassing. They didn't think about synthetic materials. It was mind-boggling to, to people like me that these topics had not even hit their radar, let alone know what to do to prevent people from being harmed. Yeah, and it had like a, a garden inside with the, oh, yes. these, the rocks and the uh, waterfalls and all the stuff, the water cascading down. There were some very brilliant parts about it. If you flow water inside a building, it helps clean the air. If you put hundreds of tons of rock underneath, you know, you can heat and cool. There were a lot of parts of it that really were well executed, well designed. But that to me made the other part, the lack of anticipatory health thought. I think today in Scandinavia, if you want to have a modern super insulated building, there's a period of time where you have to cook it. You have to open all the windows, turn the heating system on, and off-gas the building before you get an occupancy permit. It costs too much money for people to develop asthma and migraines and eczema and all sorts of autoimmune self-attacking conditions. Yeah, and then you know the one in Canada? This was a Canadian Department of Defense building, and it was super insulated. And when people came to work, there were little cups, and you had a choice of aspirin, Tylenol or ibuprofen because so many people had aches and pains and other things that they just gave out pain suppressants until they found that that was just the tip of an iceberg. And now they had a lot of chronic disease claims that they had to pay for because they had done it to them. Yeah. In the uh, original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort, which occurred in a sixth school, a high school in Truckee, which was the reason Dr. Paul Cheney called the Center for Disease Control for help. I remember that's exactly how they were. They had bottles of industrial-sized bottles of aspirin lying around. They did. And it's mind-boggling. And you say, why do you have that? Well, it takes away my headache. Well, why do you have a headache? Well, only when I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And no, it's I, not your boss. It's not always your boss. Sometimes it might be, but not always. And the debate in the inhabitants of this building were which kind of, which combinations of painkillers they could take, which was most effective. The way I summarize that is you have your choice. You can sacrifice your kidney, you can sacrifice your liver, or you can sacrifice your heart and your blood vessels. Which do you want to sacrifice? Well, they wanted to sacrifice their brains and their health because that's exactly what happened. No, no, they were intellectually not brain dead. They're not brain dead. They were intellectually unprepared to grapple with the consequence of their assumptions. Because assumptions, you know assumptions, they'll make an ass out of you and me pretty quickly. 
Uh, and uh, Stephen Strauss, it appears that the viral theorists were getting out of control. He insisted that the new syndrome be called by a trivializing name, chronic fatigue syndrome. Right. And the um, Portland, Oregon EBV support group, they were being addressed by a cancer specialist named uh, Seymour Grufferman. And he said, you're never going to get anywhere with a name like chronic fatigue syndrome. And he proposed that they insert the immune deficiency into the middle of chronic fatigue syndrome to try to get the syndrome taken more seriously. And they immediately changed their name to the CFIDS Association right, right. and tried to publicize this in order to force the Center for Disease Control to create a more serious name, which they never did. So oh, CFIDS yeah. was never officially adopted. And in the United Kingdom, it's called myalgic encephalomyelitis. That's it. There you go. Myalgic encephalitis, which is a very powerful term coined by a very important doctor who was a doctor to the doctor who took care of the Windsors. Sir Donald Atchison. So, so when they became controversial, they had friends in high and low places. So in the United Kingdom, myalgic encephalitis has some respect, and they are doing some studies. And we should be leading, not follow. But the leadership, in my opinion, will now come from the private sector, not the public sector. Public sector might confirm and replicate and so forth, but it's going to be private individuals who care and have loved ones with the, with the problem uh, that create opportunity for innovative thinking and, more importantly, quality research. Because you could do a nice pilot study and then people will tear it apart. By definition, a pilot study is meant to learn from. It's not meant to be everything to everyone. But if you don't do a pilot study, you could actually do a big study and then realize there was one variable missing or something like that. This has been an amazing trip down memory lane, a lot of history here. And I just can't believe that you actually knew Dr. Stephen Strauss. Because I, I was a contemporary I, of his. I was a contemporary of his. And now a name that I do want to mention, Harvey Alter. Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, mycoplasma study. Mycoplasma, hepatitis, work with Bruce Blumberg, the guy who got the Nobel for hepatitis. And so when I was running the blood bank at NIH with his help and others, he comes to me and he says, you know, it's kind of funny that people who are heroin addicts in the United States, they get the kind of serotype hepatitis that is rampant in the Middle East and not the kind of hepatitis that's in the United States. And he says, why don't you call up the DEA and see if they have some samples of street heroin and we'll analyze it for hepatitis virus. And I thought, I'll bet if we did that, we could publish it. So that was my first thought. My second thought was, I'll bet nobody did that before, because you can't just call up the DEA and have them give you evidence, even if it's, you know, expired. But I was at the clinical center. I call up and they say, sure. So I go down and I'm going to receive a series of specimens, the total of which is 10 kilograms of street heroin. And they even know, but they don't, we're asking them not to tell us. They know which ones were associated with hepatitis outbreaks and which ones were not. And then it occurs to me, if there's an accident in my car as I drive back to Bethesda, how am I going to explain what's in the back seat? And so I say to them, may I have a class one license? Now there's class one, two, three, four, five. Most doctors are two, three, four. Class one is heroin and, and stuff like that. And they go to the person who's in charge and the person who's in charge says, we can do that. So they gave me a class one license. I go back and the reason I'm telling you the story is not only did we prove 
that there was hepatitis antigen that had survived the very harsh chemistry of turning poppy juice into heroin or similar. But Harvey went on to prove that it was actually infectious. So I actually published with Harvey Alter in the 70s what turned out to be a very big surprise, which is you can treat certain infectious particles with very harsh chemicals and they're still bad mojo. Fascinating. And Harvey finally made it. Well, he was in the National Academy of Sciences for a long time, but I think he got the Nobel Prize himself like two years ago. Wonderful human being, thought that Steve was on the wrong track, tried to bring Steve around to our broader view. He didn't know the answer. He just knew it wasn't all mechanistic. Well, uh, I want to be sure and get it in here that I'm doing the heretical act of trying to clear Stephen Strauss's name. Good for you. Before you told me that, I already told you my respect for him. It doesn't mean I have to agree or that he would agree with me on all matters. But respect absolutely and does his name deserve to be remembered and well-remembered as an honest scientist within his time and frame. It's ironic that due to the confusion over the chronic fatigue syndrome, the circumstances under which the syndrome was brought into existence, it created all these wild arguments that have never been settled. People never went back to find out exactly what happened. And Dr. Cheney is considered to be heroic for his pursuit of viruses. And Dr. Strauss is considered the most evil person in the history of medicine. Whereas uh, I believe that if Strauss had been left to his own devices, he would have eventually looked into the environmental factors in the sick building syndrome because he signals his, his intention to do so. Complicated subject over a glass of wine or Prosecco sometime we'll talk more about. Looking back to the 30s when the Dust Bowl happened, there was a lot of failing crops, dust pneumonia occurred. In the last two years, we've been having these massive Saharan dust storms. I believe last year there was 20 million tons of Saharan dust that hit the United States. It was called Godzilla. Now, what I want to know is these particulates that are coming through the atmosphere, the, the dust that has been shown to contain a lot of environmental toxicants like metals and such. When that hits the United States, does that do something to the microbes in the environment or does that cause any kind of illness? Because it seems like there's a lot of interesting things happening right now in correlation when that dust storm hit recently in July. There's a summer flu happening amongst like adolescents right now that people are baffled about. Newscasters are saying that we should expect to see an uptick in respiratory issues. So I just wanted to know your thoughts and ideas on that since you are pretty well versed in environmental toxicants. Well, starting with what you were just talking about, what we do know is that every year, the way in which mercury and arsenic-based fungicides are sprayed in Saharan Africa, that 100 tons of mercury and arsenic are lifted up into the high atmosphere, come all the way across the ocean, and deposit all along the East Coast, from the Caribbean to Newfoundland. And if you think you're okay on the West Coast, there's 100 tons that comes from the Gobi Desert, Mongolia, and China. That's a fact. It's not an opinion. Many organizations have confirmed. Now, you added an interesting additional wrinkle. Is there anything about the most recent dust storm, which, by the way, is not associated in time with the proper offset to what you're talking about. So I don't think it has to do with these uptick in what is happening. Weaker lungs, weaker hearts, weaker blood vessels, more comorbidities. 
and we try to link cause and effect. Maybe. The last few hundred times I tried, it was more complicated. So are we being exposed to toxic metals at a level that at a minimum, you need a minimum of two grams a day of nature's fully reduced vitamin C ascorbate just to deal with today's toxic metals, let alone any you might have accumulated over the last few decades. And then what about the hormone-disrupting, persisting pollutants, the POPs? What about the solvent residues? What about the mold products? What about the isotopes? I didn't used to have to even mention isotopes, but then Chernobyl started, and Three Mile Island, and Fukushima, and others, because I am rated all the way through uranium, I could tell you stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. How close we came to meltdowns before Fukushima, and how foolish in hindsight, how unnecessary, how penny-wise and pound-foolish that whole disaster was. But just for personal disclosure, when Chernobyl started to melt down, within seven minutes of the satellite noticing that it was melting down, I get a call from my friend Amory Levins, who has Armin Hammer on the phone, Armin Hammer's surgeon, the head of the, the uh, Scientist for Atomic Welfare, fellow named Von Hippel out of Princeton, and I don't know why they're calling me. And the answer is Chernobyl is melting down which means the water is all contaminated. And I said, well, the answer is very simple. You have to bring tank cars of water in, put vitamin C in the water to keep it sterile, and bring the people out on those same trains that bring the water in. Well, this got all the way up to the Politburo. If you don't know what the Politburo is, I'll tell you some other time. But some lawyer in the Politburo says, well, eventually this will come out and we will look bad. Well, they looked worse because they sent the water in, they had to do that, they didn't put the vitamin C in, and they didn't bring the people out. And to this day, Chernobyl is still melting down. To this day, Fukushima is still melting down. The largest refrigeration process in the entire world failed because if you try to freeze a nuclear meltdown, I am 100% confident the nuclear meltdown will win and your refrigeration system won't work. But on day one, in regard to Fukushima, my friend Amory Levins and I and his colleague in Japan urged the prime minister to bring in seawater and boric acid and save the other reactors. On day three of Fukushima, the prime minister flies in on his prime minister's helicopter and finds that TEPCO lied. They lied to the prime minister. So he ordered boric acid and seawater, and they only lost three out of four reactors. If the fourth reactor had gone, they would have had to evacuate Tokyo. Do you understand that if you have to evacuate Tokyo, there is no Japan? That's just one example that took a few days and it's still going on. And I'm really sad to report that today in North Tokyo, people bring a Geiger counter when they go to buy their vegetables. And if the Geiger counter starts going click, 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 someone runs from the back and takes that away and brings out a new uh, tray of, of vegetables. Do you know that when I was young, we, did, we knew that, that there were Geiger counters. We didn't know how to use them. We didn't think we would need them to go to the store just to buy a carrot. Well, that's the time we live in. One of the things about the Lake Tahoe outbreak was that, you know, Lake Tahoe is pretty high up in the Sierras. It's a beautiful, pristine place. And it seemed like if there were any environmental problems, that would be the last place where it would occur. But the pollution from the San Joaquin Valley had been uh -huh. getting higher and higher every uh -huh. year until 1985 when it finally crested the Sierras, spilled into the basin, 
right. and completely filled the, the area with a blue haze. It was the, this exact time when the um, crayfish died, frogs disappeared, the birds looked sick, the trees looked terrible, and the mystery illness occurred. So that, that's why we were wondering about the uh, Sahara dust storms, because it seems like there's some aspect of pollution that when it affects the microbial terrain, it can result in a cascade of effects that can unleash toxins. That's exactly right. Very often the toxins are stored until acid rain or so certain other man-made influences liberates them. We actually and have newspaper articles describing this. And amazingly enough, when Lake Tahoe, um, when researchers come to, every once in a while, they, they do still do come to Lake Tahoe to discuss this famous origin of chronic fatigue syndrome. I've been telling you about the sick building syndrome. And at the same time, another survivor approached these researchers who were, they, they just come in, they want to talk about their own theories. They don't listen to us. But he was getting right in their faces, telling them about the Bateson building saying that's oh, a perfect example of what happened here. Yes, it really is. It's a, it's a moment in time. It's a meaningful moment. But I was there. I didn't just read the Sacramento Bee. And for whatever reason, I have had the great good fortune to be present a couple of times. Cheney was a very complicated guy, but certainly a man who deserved, first of all, he deserved to be listened to and respected. And if I remember, he ended up for his own personal reasons on the East Coast of the United States, and maybe even on an island or something, but a, in a place that he thought was healthier for him, because he had his own health challenges. And then there are the people who say they tried to hurt him. I don't know. I don't know. I know too much to just dismiss that out of hand, but unless you show me the facts, I refuse to be paranoid. Well, the uh, Chamber of Commerce was so distressed over the way Dr. Paul Cheney drew national attention to our little town that right. they tried to destroy him. They did, and they were motivated, and they were, I think, funded. But yes, very often when a person like Paul Cheney is, quote, attacked, you don't know where the money came from. The Chamber of Commerce said that he held Lake Tahoe in a bad light. Look, people knew about Lake Tahoe. If you asked 100 people who knew about Lake Tahoe, how many of them knew about Paul Cheney and that he held it in a bad light? One? I mean, to us, it was a big issue. And, and, and locally, in the Tahoe area, very important issue that, in my opinion, was strangled and squashed. Yeah, uh, the uh, ski resorts basically were very politically connected, and they went to Representative Paul Laxalt and actually warned him that if he didn't intercede with the Center for Disease Control and do something to derail the focus on Lake Tahoe, that he would never be reelected. And he believed them. And he was Paul Laxalt. This was like going to Ted Kennedy or going to uh, Hatch uh, and saying such things. But he took them seriously. He knew who buttered his bread. Yeah, there's a very, fairly good circumstantial evidence that the Center for Disease Control responded to this pressure and just dropped the investigation. They did. That, that's not circumstantial. That path has been um, documented. It's not as simple as it seems, but yes, it did, and no, it shouldn't have happened. At the time, I was actually impressed with Stephen Strauss's decision to call the syndrome chronic fatigue syndrome because the, the pressure uh, on Lake Tahoe, the economy was suffering, businesses were going bankrupt, 
people were refusing to come to the ski resorts. I mean, we seriously were in trouble. And I thought, well, this is brilliant if they give the syndrome a stupid name and say that there's nothing specific going on at Lake Tahoe, diffuse it over the larger picture of people getting sick across the nation, then they can pursue this matter quietly. But instead, the CDC took their own cover-up seriously, and they never proceeded on any of the evidence. Since you've mentioned the CDC a few times, do you know about the EIS? Uh, the Epidemiological Intelligence Service? Do you know what that is? It's basically damage control. It's the CIA of the CDC, and you cannot be an institute director at the National Institutes of Health today without spending two years being brainwashed there because I was offered, and I said no. And they said, well, you know, that's going to affect your career. And I said, uh, let me check with my mother. And they said, uh, that won't work. And I said, no, thank you. And they said, you don't understand. This is not something you can say no to. I said, I just did. And I went to my boss. And he said, tell them to go fuck themselves. It was the day when you could do that. Not anymore. But yes, I know that about as well as anybody you could talk to in terms of who was there as opposed to who read the book. Because what gets written and what gets edited and what gets redacted, don't believe, just don't believe it's the truth, the, the whole truth. It's a little bit of the truth, you know, with, with a whole lot of uh, spinning around. Well, Dr. Gary Holmes actually did a very competent and adequate investigation of the circumstances. And this was reported back to the uh, CDC. This uh, was also presented to the NIH. And they were fully aware of the situation. Oh, no question. And no question. And Gary Holmes is one of the unsung heroes of this saga. High integrity person didn't come with a bias. And next to Stephen Strauss, Dr. Holmes gets more blame for the confusion caused by the chronic fatigue syndrome debacle than anybody else. And yet, as you say, he was honest and he did good work. And if you think good work goes unpunished, think again. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely learning that. So I'm ho hoping to get this story out there by saying that we can reconsider some of these concepts, these ideas that people have had for all these years. Because if you just look at how the syndrome came about, all these matters can be settled actually within a few hours. Well, if you were rational, but okay. I try. I can talk to you about where are the resources that exist that are super well-funded that will provide the data that if that data was properly analyzed and if it was properly overlaid with the proper individual and environmental assessments would show that a million people a year die at very high cost, about a trillion plus a year. And that trillion could actually be redeployed to health promotion. Instead of America losing a year and a half on average lifespan while it spends every more, America could actually get healthier and spend less. But if you had a trillion dollars a year coming through something and someone came by like me and said, give it up, would you? Not easily. That's the problem. Ask anybody who's successful in business, and one of the things they'll say is follow the money, because more than ever, and I had the privilege of being at NIH when it was a meritocracy, because the growth of our budgets always exceeded inflation in healthcare, and therefore, we always had enough. In fact, when I was there, it was called September money, because October is the fiscal year for the government. And so you always had money left in September and you had to spend it because if you didn't spend it next year, you wouldn't have an, uh, that same amount of money. It's completely different today. It's like the curtain came down and the curtain went up. It is the way it is. 
if it had stayed the way it was, people like me would still be at NIH. The fact that we're not actually tells you a lot because the people who stayed were the politicians and not the creative types. The people who knew the answer stayed. The people who were paid stayed. The people who left were the ones you wanted to stay. So creating a meritocracy is not easy, and I will tell you the short story, which is the reason that NIH came into existence in 1947, and the reason that the government bought a one-square-mile monastery that the Catholic Church didn't need in Bethesda, Maryland. Why? To pull together all government research into one meritocracy that would be very well-funded, and therefore people wouldn't have to fight about money. They could actually be good scientists. Albert and Mary Lasker, Florence Stevenson Mahoney, Emil Daddario, Lister Hill, William Fulbright, half a dozen people changed the course of history. And by the way, they wouldn't have known the biomedical complex from a stone. What they wanted was an alternative to the military-industrial complex, which was going to take over the entire economy. And the only thing big enough was health. Five people altered the course of American healthcare? Look them up. The Lasker Award is the stepping stone to the Nobel Prize. Florence Stevenson Mahoney provided me a place to stay when I needed a place to stay. Emil Daddario, Lister Hill. The Hill-Burton Act created hospitals all over the country. We didn't need them, but it paid for them. Be careful when you try to do good. It's not easy. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do good. I'm just saying doing good is not easy. And if, if doing good ends up making a lot of money for a few people, I'm pretty sure it will end up not helping people. That's why it comes back over and again to individuals who have a personal interest, a personal need, and then you do, as you correctly said. You need to have someone who knows methods, methodology. There are people. And right now, many of them are looking for meaningful work. The people of goodwill will persevere and they will accomplish goodwill in whatever context they can. Small, medium, large. And what I say to people is do what you can. Grow a tomato and then grow two tomatoes and you have one and give, give one to someone else. And I will end with the two potato stories. So a man named Ram Das, also named Richard Alpert, goes to a man in the Himalayas known as Guruji or whatever. And he says, tell me what to do. And the man says, here are two potatoes, two cooked potatoes. I want you to go down to the creek or the river, and I want you to sit under this specific tree, and I want you to eat the two potatoes. And he goes and he eats one potato, and a beggar comes by and says, I see that you had two potatoes, and I'm starving. Give me your second potato. And out of compassion, he gives the guy the second potato. He goes back to the man who looks at him and says, did you think I needed the second potato? Think about that one for a while. Thank you, Dr. Jaffe, for that story. And that's exactly what we are trying to do. It will happen. Keep the faith. It will happen. You'd be surprised where you have friends in low and high places. Persevere. Never give up. Never give up. Thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, we totally understand that you're really busy. And um, if you have those resources on the people, foundations, places, feel free to send it on by to my email. I think that's really just the barrier right now is we're doing so many things and we're starting this foundation. and. The core of what we want to do is, is prove basically causality of what's going on in the environment and how to help this patient base that we're dealing with that Keely, Eric, and I have, have severely suffered injuries from mold and we know the pain and the suffering and the loss that came with it and we really want to stop that.
just based upon our efforts and also putting out research and trying to get mold illness recognized because it is harming so many people and it can manifest in so many different ways. Well, if I may ask, why do you think there's such resistance to understanding mold illness? Well, it's political, right? Something that you had mentioned earlier and uh, the financial industry would, would basically fall out, right? Uh, if everyone knew that their drywall was preloaded with stachybotrys and all it needs is a water event, uh, humid, humidity issues or food source, and then all of a sudden your, your indoor air quality is poison. Um, I think if everyone knew this fact, uh, insurances would be in big, big trouble. Well, um, let, me, let me throw in something here. Why couldn't Dr. Paul Cheney, Dr. Steven Strauss, Dr. Daniel Peterson, Dr. Anthony Komaroff, why couldn't they comprehend the sick building scenario when they investigated it? They're all in one group, in one small town, looking at the same thing. They're seeing all these sick building syndrome incidents arise simultaneously. And I was talked to Dr. Cheney at the time, and he said, the reason that we are not going to attach importance to this is because it is impossible for all these different sick buildings to get worse at once. It has to be a virus. And I said, what if they did? What if they did all get worse at once? What if it was the change in construction, the change in fresh air infiltration, the things that you know about that I take it he didn't because he really deserves to be remembered and positively so. But there were times when he wouldn't listen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no disrespect, because I've probably have been there myself. But with these issues, if any time you stop listening, you lose. Well, the way that the uh, sick building syndrome emerged so quickly in Lake Tahoe, it threw everybody for a loop. They just could not accept that there had been this significant uh, change. And once they went down the viral path, they never looked back. Right, because what you just said, Alicia, look, follow the money, follow the insurance, follow the liability. So I become friends with this guy, Roy Anderson, who explains to me that health insurance has nothing to do with health and insurance. Then he comes to me and he says, you know, we insure, uh, we have a liability company, Allstate has a liability company, and we insure things like asbestos, formaldehyde, and mercury, and lead. I said, would you mind? If I looked at the portfolio of the risk analysis and whatever, and I concluded that they were under-reserved by $250 million, which even for them was a big number, and they didn't want to hear it, and they were owned at the time by Sears, and they ended up paying $480 million because Roy called me up and said, you were right. I said, about what? <laughs> because at that point, I didn't even know what he was talking about. He said, we were under-reserved. I said, by how much? He said, well, about half a billion. I said, did they notice? He said, yes. I said, will they do it again? He said, no. I said, well, maybe they should talk to us before they do it again. <laughs> when you change something fundamental like construction techniques, and that has a liability, if you think the insurance companies and the construction companies are going to let you understand that risk, what planet do you live on? You have to at some point follow the money. Doesn't matter whether you have it or you don't have it, you just have to respect it because it is what it is. It's one of the fluids that allows things to happen. Well, now there's a growing number of us that uh, want our health back and we don't care about the money. We'll do whatever it takes. No, 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 all good, 
all good. I just think you need to find a few people, friends or relatives or whatever, who also want what you want and have the money. At the moment, you can't depend upon our State Department to have a clue about what's going on in the world. We should. Don't you think we have diplomats who have, you know, common sense? By the time they become successful diplomats, common sense has been pretty much beaten out of them intellectually. So just be on the lookout for the people who are grateful for what you're doing, do what you're doing, and just document it as best you can. The uh, methodologists, the researchers, and so forth, they'll show up. There's not a lack of people who know how to do the studies. They don't smell the funds. At the moment, almost everybody's hungry. I'm saying something very simple. You should continue doing exactly what you're doing in exactly the ways you're doing it. But be on the lookout for somebody who cares, who has resources, and I don't care if it's a trust fund or they made it themselves. Right now, there are people with enough money sloshing around that is looking for something to do that will be memorable and meaningful. However, most of them are captive of the very people who would shut you down. So obviously, you have to go to the less conventional or the unconventional, not the conventional. Yeah, I think a lot of people are looking at our work right now and just trying to figure out if we're credible or not. And I believe our interview today has gone a long way towards establishing... Oh, I hope so. I, I, I was just going to say, if there's anything that I would feel good about from today, it would be validating what you're already doing and encouraging others to support what you're doing. Much needed. Thank you, Dr. Daffy. We won't take any more of your time. And hopefully we can have you on in the future because we actually wanted to learn more about your biotechnology company. I'd be happy to show how it evokes human healing response and restores tolerance, but that's the appetizer for the next conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. It was a wonderful conversation with Dr. Russell Jaffe. This man is amazing. I am so happy that he agreed to join us today. We've covered some really interesting topics, everything that pretty much we all have been thinking about what we want to know, and also some information on how we can get some research going into solving some of these issues that we're currently facing. So please like, share, comment on our content. Also check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling and also to put towards research. Thank you again, everyone. We'll see you next time.